You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. So how did a plant biologist with a grandmother from Glasgow end up as president of the National Intelligence University. I mean, I feel that Glasgow throws out these kinds of historical curveballs all the time. How did Bobby Thompson go from the streets of Glasgow to adding the 1951 shot heard around the world for the New York Giants? How did Andrew Hammond, for that matter, end up as historian and curator at the International Spy Museum? To dig into the only institution of higher education in the United States that allows its students to study and complete research in the top secret, sensitive, compartmentalised information arena, I sat down with Dr. Scott Cameron for this week's episode. Along the way, we discussed the NIU, what it is, what it does, and perhaps more importantly, what it does differently. We also discussed its unique student body, its position within the US intelligence ecosystem, and the success of its alumni, which include the current president of the Brookings Institute and the current director of the NSA, Paul Nakasone. I was thinking that we could start off with something a little bit different, a bit irreverent. Maybe we could discuss the, you know, so how did uh, a plant biologist with a grandmother from Glasgow end up being the president of the <laughs> National Intelligence University. So I was actually I was actually recruited at a soccer match in high school soccer match in Mar- Montgomery County, Maryland. Really? Yeah, on a question about bananas. Um, <laughs> so so let's let's start there then. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a post I'm a post nine eleven recruit. Recruit. Yeah. And you were at a high school soccer game in Montgomery County? Sitting next to a, another father for six weeks asking me questions about science and everything at the end of six weeks I just said okay I'll answer that question if you tell me who you are what agency you're from and and uh, and, and what are you recruiting me for and uh, yeah I answered the question and at the end of the question I threw a national security spin on the answer and, and he goes do you want a job? <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah and I said no. <laughs> That's fascinating. What you said no, but then you relented. Well, yeah, it was then it was an issue of having. Um, I, I wanted to keep in touch because I was sci- I was actually a scientist in USDA, right? So basically, what happened? I had to do a senior executive sab- sabbatical uh, at one point. So they kept calling. They called a couple times. The NIU. What's it about? Like I've heard it called a school for spies, but my guess is that it's a little bit more complicated than that, and that's not probably the best description either. So <laughs> <laughs> correct the record. Well, thanks. Um, so for us, uh, we provide education across the IC, our military partners, the broader U.S. government, the national security enterprise, uh, very broadly described, right? It's a place where you address strategic challenges 
in an environment where, you know, our best and brightest can collaborate. Um, an experience that advances integrates the workforce, which is really important in what we do. And all of that leads to teaching, research, and engagement that enhances the enterprise, supports the intelligence community, and develops our future leaders. But it's a little bit different um, because our community is closed off. We do work uh, in secret. So how do you bank knowledge in that kind of a community? All the, all communities that uh, are healthy, bank knowledge and learn from it. So our job is is not just to be a classroom, but to, to be that defender of knowledge, you know, building in the community, make sure that we're learning from ourselves, that we understand ourselves and advance our mission by better ideas and then empowering the next generation to take those and equip them with the confidence to go out there and do something with it. And I'm just thinking about some of the ways that the NIU is different from a traditional university. So obviously you're doing something that's unique to government work uh, in many respects. So it's not something that you could just say, okay, Boston University or Georgetown, put these classes on for us. So, so that's one focus. But I guess the other thing that makes you unique is you're the only institution in the country where people can research and study top secret, sensitive, compartmentalized information. <laughs> Got there in the end. Yeah. Yeah, and and there are other institutions that have elements that they work at TSSCI. Um, we're the entire institution. We're behind guards, guns, and gates, totally. Um, so we're skiffed out that way to to be that institution, that free exchange of ideas, no matter uh, where you come from across the enterprise, right? But our student experience, right? So so getting back kind of the role of the student, right? So imagine you're in your early 30s and you come to NIU. You've been out there on the line leading a mission. You're an analyst, you're a collector, you're an operator. Whatever role you play, for wherever you come from, you've been watching the mission. You've been watching the mission, particularly over the last 20 years, so much change, right? We've gone through an era of counterterrorism. We're kind of reorienting ourselves now uh, and focusing on strategic deterrence. And you look at that and, and you know what the challenges are because you face them every day. And you're at that point where you're leading people and you're, you're contributing to the mission every day. But you don't have a lot of strategic bandwidth, time, or resources to actually take what's wrong, take what needs fixing, or a better idea, you know, transformational thinking. There's not a lot of time for that. So those 10 and 50 meter targets that you're dealing with every day. So you come to a place like NIU and you walk into a classroom and the classrooms are full of people from all over the enterprise. They do all those missions. And all of a sudden you're finding out that they have many of the same challenges, many of the same ideas, tech, what technology could do if we just were able to harness it quickly, right? What are the laws, the policies that, are, that, are, that, that make the mission harder that we need to have conversations about? All of those things, kind of explore the breadth of the mission uh, and be able to relate to the challenges that everyone has and then understand like, wow, if we talk about that. So these folks understand what that looks like. So we're trying to elicit from them. So we tell them, I tell them at convocation, your job is not to come to a classroom and listen to us. Your job is to put your ideas on the table, what you know on the table, put the challenge on the table. Let us know what that looks like. Integrate that with the work of other agencies who have the same challenges and then start adjudicating a better truth, better idea out of that. And from that comes people who like, wow, I have a deep Rolodex because my educational experience here was to give me this very deep understanding of the entire enterprise and how it functions, who does what, meet those people, get to integrate with them, and then walk out with a better understanding of how I can make it better. What I aspire to be, my highest and best use for national security. And that's what we aspire for all of our students. But you know, when you walk through the student area downstairs where, where they all congregate and where they're all working, sometimes I walk through a snack nights, weekends, days, just to talk to them and find out what their thesis, what they're doing, you know. But sometimes I just listen to them and I hear them connecting. I'm hearing them talk about the future. That's why I come to work every day, to hear that. It's amazing. It really is. It's a very special experience. Uh, and that's, you're not going to find quite that model in other places because they're talking about things that the public doesn't talk about. But they have hope because they know from talking to each other and what they're learning, they can do something with that. It's, it's a great, great feeling to see that every day. And they, they literally come from across all of the different intelligence institutions. They come from CIA, NSA, yep. DIA, and there's also some Five Eyes people that come, is that right? No. No. Uh, okay. So we have, we have partner, we have great partnerships with our Five Eyes counterparts and 
we have uh, kind of interactive joint activities that we do. So my goal with them is to find out. I've I've asked them and, and like, how do we get? How do we figure out who our thought leaders are? Your thought leaders are. How do we do something jointly better by having our smart people all talk together and and have a different perspective, regional perspectives around the world. Threats in our part of the world and another part of the world look very different through the eyes of the people who are oriented around them, right? So we learn a lot from those partners. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a better intellectual capital, better base of information that then that 360 academic view of life kind of flows into all of our missions. That's that's the goal with them. From across our own community, those 18 plus partners, right? So the 18 are there, uh, the services, of course, um, but we also, that broader enterprise, think about what happened after 9-11, right? So now you've got USDA. I was at USDA. There was an intelligence mission there, right? Because the infrastructure that they're protecting and dealing with, um, HHS, I mean, we've seen over the last couple of years, understanding health intelligence and, and how we actually build out programs to protect people and infrastructure, very important. So this broadening of our mission and, and understanding that the more we can partner with people who have a national security um, stake, uh, is is actually great. We've had people from FDIC. I mean, people who have skin in the game and bring them in. And this is what's great about it because it's a long list of people who actually, if you're a government employee and have a TSSEI, you're eligible to come to NIU, which means like, well, we've never had somebody from there before, but look at the intellectual capital we can pull out of them, right? And, and their mission, their beachhead. We, we encourage every mission manager, everyone with a statutory authority, a functional mission to build a beachhead at NIU. So their intellectual capital flows into this. I've had a previous guest on who uh, worked in law enforcement, researching New Jersey street gangs and, and organized crime and so forth. But it's a, it's a small intelligence shot, but that type of person could come to NIU. So we have, you know, it's a distributed model, a national security workforce. So what we'll see is, for example, that person might wind up, they may be a, a reservist. So we have a, a weekend executive program uh, that a lot of the reserved units around the country will, can, will send their people to. If those people are kind of uh, being detailed into part of the, the enterprise that has access to NIU, that can happen. We've seen some interesting things, right? So some of our part-time like reservists play those roles out in the public and then they wind up through their you know, reserve role coming in. And that's great because we get those perspectives. I'm from New Jersey. So the person you described, we had somebody, I think from DEA uh, a couple of years ago. We see that. And that's good because organizational diversity is incredibly important to us. Diversity of all forms, of course, all voices, but having regional perspectives and flavors is, is also a really healthy thing for us. Mm -hmm. And just out of interest, where in New Jersey are you from? So I am from Northwest New Jersey, from Denville, New Jersey. It's on the, it was at the time, kind of the, the edge of rural and suburban where they meet. So grew up in a place, we had acres, we had barns, we had a pond. I grew up kind of as a STEM kid out in the woods and just fell in love with nature. Which, of course, is, explains why I'm here. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I, want to, I want to come back to that. But let's try to get our arms around the NIU a little bit more. So the latest that I could find online and from other information was you offer one bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, uh, graduate certificates. Yeah, I'm just trying to get a broad overview of it. Help us get our arms around it. What do you offer how many people come, what type of people come apart from the fact that they come from all these different institutions. Give us a sense of that. So thanks. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, at any given time, we're under a thousand students. We're not very large. 120 plus faculty, um, some full-time and we have adjuncts. So we, we're pulling from the intellectual capital across the enterprise as well to come teach. The majority of our students are multi or they're coming part-time. The full-time students probably in that 200, 300 range, and then the balance of that under 1,000 number is part-time. Uh, we have, as you said, a bachelor's program, which is basically finish out your fourth year with us. If you bring the credits to the table, and you know, when I first got there, I asked, and so, like, so is that really a pool of people? And it turns out, you think about uh, people who've been in the military who never got a chance to finish, right? And all of a sudden, you look at this program. It's an amazing program. Uh, they finish out their fourth year. They do it in cohort style. They do it um, with a capstone project. 
which uh, really functions at the level of graduate study. It's really intense. And sometimes those projects are sponsored by stakeholders. And these folks are put through their paces uh, and they make presentations uh, to the stakeholders and myself and the leadership team. And it is a transformational thing. That one program probably changes more careers per capita in many ways, because think about it, they finally, wow. they may be the first person in their family to ever get that degree. And all of a sudden it qualifies for them for a job that they never really thought that they were. So to, for them to find a way to finish out in the national security enterprise and, and make that connection back in. Um, great stories um, of people whose uh, careers probably weren't going the direction they had hoped and they did this program. And the, the exposure, that Rolodex, the, uh, great stories, wonderful stories. The graduate programs, we have a, a master's degree in strategic intelligence and then one in science and technology intelligence. Uh, those two degrees, as well as uh, technical topics that, you know, uh, um, we have a short format, you know, a certificate program that is really flexible. So what that allows us to do is serve people at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level with two very relevant degrees, that kind of depth on the enterprise and then kind of the underpinnings of how S&T actually drive everything else in our business. And then also they're able to come in on topical areas and get deeper. So there's the the foundational enterprise, that deep learning thing, and then you've got these other topics where people can get smarter on them to come back into the enterprise and, and continue to evolve it. And some of those shorter courses are like Afghanistan, Pakistan, warning intelligence, different sorts of things? Yes. Uh, in fact, I have the list in front of me. Um, we, we've done those in Africa, China, CI, counterintelligence, Eurasia, leadership and management, strategic warning, homeland, Terrorism, broader Middle East, collection analysis, strategic intelligence, and special operations, which I have a, a real soft spot for, uh, WMD, cyber intelligence. No pun intended. Data science. I think yeah. you said a soft spot. I, I oh, did. you did? A okay. soft spot. <laughs> okay. yeah, uh, pun was yeah. intended then. Yeah, that, that's a shout out to our, uh, our academic center down in Tampa, uh, if you're listening. Uh, and then uh, merging technologies and geostrategic resources, which I don't know why that would write. <laughs> Looking at what's going on worldwide now, and you think about rare earth element, all of it, right? And then, um, you know, influence and information intelligence, those types of topics. But as we get into where we are right now in our new governance structure and working with our stakeholders, the ability to kind of coalesce their ideas and their kind of where their needs are and be able to hear that and then be flexible enough to do that. And then at the same time, if we need to build out broader, deeper programs that require accreditation review and things like that, we can do that and work with our accreditors over mm -hmm. time. So we have kind of solutions to kind of move with our stakeholders where they're at right now. Wow. There's, there's really a lot going on there. For the various degrees, like how does one get to attend the National Intelligence University. So there's certain stipulations, right? You have to be a US citizen. Uh, you have to have TSSCI clearance and you have to be nominated by someone. Is that correct? Like how does the selection process take place? So um, we have, uh, like right now, actually, there's a call going out in the intelligence community for senior schools. So we are one of them. So people who want to attend our full-time program the military, we are still a, a JPME, Joint Professional Military Education uh, uh, Tier 1 program. So we have a DOD accredited program and a civilian accredited program, right? And they work in harmony and our JPME 1 military students actually get a master's degree. So it's a really good deal for them. What happens is the, the military sends their people through their normal route. Uh, to our programs and they apply, they come, many of them PCS in the full-time program, they're coming from different places. And then uh, around the Beltway here in particular, uh, folks will apply for that program or again, 70, 75% of our students are not full-time and they come in the evenings and, and the days and the weekends as well. Let's go to a couple of the big pluses if there's anyone out there that wants to attend. There's no tuition, right? No tuition. And the right. and the stat and the faculty to student ratio is extremely uh, awesome. It's it is right? it is really awesome. Um, you know, if if like I was a graduate educator um, back at a big land grant university, and uh, on the days that I had, uh, you know, five six graduate students, those a good day. <laughs> mm. uh, you really want to spend the time with them. So that ratio uh, is is pretty low. Classroom's pretty low, uh, and but the idea that you have the ability to have a team built around you, right? So let's say you come in and and you want to work on this topic, 
that you discussed with your stakeholder parent at home, right? And the question, like, how do we actually build the capacity around you to do something like that? So uh, we've had students who uh, threw something on the table and uh, all of a sudden a group of people talk about their Rolodexes and how to build. And next thing you know, there's this team of people working on a hard problem with a student. And I, I just think that's the, the beauty of it is being able to have an experience where um, you come in, uh, there's no preconceived notion of what you're going to do but increasingly getting our stakeholders to be the ones to help drive the hopes and dreams of their, you know, of, of the people they're sending. And it's around five to one, the, the faculty student ratio or something? Uh, you know, I think in terms of graduate advising, you know, it's, it's in, that range, in, in that range. And I saw that in the past, I think it's the past 10 years, you've opened up a number of different campuses. So we can talk about some of the locations. Um, I've been over to visit, well, I haven't been to the NIU at the Intelligence Community Campus in Bethesda, but I've been to the NCSC a few times. So we can talk about the Bethesda campus and <laughs> I'm waiting for the invitation. Wow, so you've been right down the hall from me. You've seen the wall of spies at NCSC, I right? didn't think I could get in. <laughs> so, so, okay. Yeah, let's talk about Bethesda and then also okay. um, Huntingdon and Tampa and yeah, yeah. other places. And and, and yes, uh, so I'm committing to the world, but we'll, we'll get you over, Andrew, and we look forward to that visit. Um, uh, yeah, so Bethesda is, is a great story uh, because uh, back in my past, uh, I built, I was one of a team of people who designed and built a university campus on the Pacific Northwest on 350 acres uh, where there was nothing. So that idea of having a purpose-built facility and going through that philosophical process of like, how does form and function meet for higher education? So this built this campus we're in is purpose built and it's higher education driven it's 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 amazing so i had that experience of doing that somewhere else and walking in and looking around and saying wow they did that you know and in government for building buildings i was very proud of of what they accomplished for it and as, as you'll see it's a it's a it's a beautiful facility that uh is wired and 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 knows what it's doing and its capabilities can uh and reach out and are pretty flexible so we're proud of the facility we have. Uh, the other places that we work with, you know, uh, we talk about Tampa, right? And so there's a CENTCOM, SOCOM focus down there. Uh, they're great partners. Uh, we also work with JSAO. Uh, we have the opportunity to go to different places to meet the needs of different stakeholders, but we're also drawing from the knowledge of that population, so strategically, what we like to do is to be able to look at a mission that's really important and be able to pull those thought leaders, pull that intellectual capital out of that location as well. And increasingly now, as you see higher education uh, struggling with bricks and mortar, and to be fair, particularly you know, as we're learning these lessons through COVID, right? The more that technology plays a role in connecting us, both in delivery, uh, but it's also about research, teaching, and engagement. So how do we build a presence? So we then we have delivery sites and, and many other places. I won't read the whole list, but... The ability to, to reach out and touch people, groups of people, uh, and then integrate them into that conversation is, is an ongoing technological journey for us. I think one of the interesting things that I found about the NIU, um, tell us a little bit more about its evolution. So 1962, you mentioned its founding. When in 1962 was it? Uh, uh, you know, I couldn't find much online, but <laughs> I'm assuming it wasn't because, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened and then they thought, <laughs> let's uh, let's try to make sure we don't, you know, we can do what we can to not help the world be destroyed. Um, that would be a great story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, we'll do a movie script on that. Um, yeah, so, but no, actually not far off, really. So you think about Eisenhower, his experience, right? His own experience with war in his role and looking out at that and then thinking about military integration, thinking about how information distribution, like those lessons, he was pretty focused on having conversations with people about. And I, I think that's an interesting part of his legacy in terms of moving forward because moving into the, the Kennedy administration, Kennedy and Merrick McNamara, McNamara picked that up, right? So in 62, you have DIA created, for the reasons that, you know, Eisenhower, that, that conversation. But they also looked out across the, um, the schoolhouses and they said, hey, why don't we consolidate these schoolhouses in the military? And they did that. So by doing that, they created a defense intelligence college, right? So it's, it's an advanced training schoolhouse that, that consolidates all of those equities. So over time, 
over the years, that institution grows. There's programmatic growth. There's name changes. You kind of get into the modern era, and we have graduates out there who uh, the Joint Military Intelligence College, JMIC, or the National Defense, and Col- De- Defense Intelligence College, ENDIC, which were the last two iterations before NIU. So you get to like 2006, and ENDIC has been instructed to work towards university status, right? So it's a college, move towards a university. Think about research. Think about the elements and the broadening that you need for that. They were in the process of broadening and having those elements uh, created. Meanwhile, over in ODI, um, like in 09, uh, the DNI and PDI and were having quiet conversations about the same things that I think drove the 1962 and Eisenhower conversations about like, what's the role of education in actually pulling together like our enterprise? They had those conversations. I was being recruited, I was at NCTC, I was being recruited for college and university presidencies at the time. That was always the plan. Told Nancy we would, you know, kind of finish out the career leading an institution. And uh, at that point, I'm uh, in a conversation with them and so what do you what do you do? And and there's two ways to go, right? You can either take do what DIA, you know, what they did and pull together all the intelligence schoolhouses in the IC and then kind of integrate and augment their programs and then, you know, add critical thinking and other layers and then you move towards an accredited kind of delivery in higher education. Or you can just take another platform and partner to be able to build something out, you know, something that that's already standing. And that's what they did. Um, so that was a conversation between DNI Jim Clapper and, and SecDef. It was like, so instead of kind of building out two institutions, can we consolidate and just build one for the nation, the nation's intelligence university? And that's what they chose to do. So that was the, the 2010 into 2011 conversation about let's name it NIU. And then it goes from a college to a university. And there are elements of transformation that we're still over 10 years working through. And one of the things that I try to do as the host of SpyCast is I try not to be too far up the cliff that the people that are not involved in the IC, <laughs> you know, can't reach me. But then I also don't want to appear to be naive to the, the people that are, you know, involved in the enterprise. So it's always a kind of like balancing act. So I asked some people for this interview, like, what are the types of things that you would like to know about the National Intelligence University. And one of the first things someone said to me is, is that at the National Defense University? So let's um, let's just differentiate the, right. both of them. Like what what are they doing and what are they doing differently? So um, NDU is- Because a, they're not the same thing. No, right? they're not. Sorry. And, and No, and NDU is a, a, a great institution. Uh, they're a flagship on and, and defense education. So if you look at what they do for the military- it's, it's an amazing, uh, it's a very diverse set of programs that consolidate a lot of the intellectual development that they need, but it's done very much in the Goldwater-Nichols pathway, right? And, um, you know, hats off for that in terms of the military understanding those steps that, you know, that, that you have to take in education and training to create the, the officer, the person you're looking for, right? So they're a part of that process. Our JPME program, so we sit with the presidents of the, the DOD schools as well, right? So our program sits there. So we have a voice in that. So military education to us is exceedingly important. So, and in fact, the, the law that moved us from DOD into uh, Title 50 actually mentions students, but it mentions military students as we need to maintain our service to DOD that way. So for them, uh, you know, the type of education that people in the military need, there's a, there's a lot of things that are established in the military. And in our side of, you know, in Title 50, we're still learning a lot about how to do what we do. And, and I think for us, there's an era of trying to understand what a strategic intelligence officer is, trying to define what those people So you have people pretty well-defined, and what their career goals are. And we have lots of career paths within the IC, but looking at our enterprise and constantly trying to figure out how to reimagine it. So it's a different institution, I think, from that, if that makes sense. Those, mm-hmm. those are they're two differentiators in the mission. But there's huge, huge areas where we are achieving, obviously, the same educational goals. I mentioned WMD before. They have a wonderful WMD center there and uh, we're partners with them. And so how do we take their strengths, 
you know, and understanding things like deterrence. And then how we take a framework of WMD intelligence and build a program in which people get that very broad, but very helpful kind of comprehensive view of the topic. So we're complementary, but this is the interesting thing about NIU's transformation because we started with over 50 years of military intelligence being the focus. In 2010, we began evolving into a military plus civilian, you know, so that transformation is interesting because um, when we chose to build on a existing platform, it meant that, okay, so what's different now? Well, becoming a university for us meant we added a research component. That research component has to be its DNA has to be in everything we do in teaching engagement. It just can't be an office, right? So we be, it, it, that's a transformational thing where you change the culture of the university, where research and scholarship become every day. We'll be right back after this. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. So the the NDU and the NIU, so there are certain things that are different about your mission. The genesis of the NIU is in uh, military intelligence, but in the past 10 years, you've been, there's a legacy system that comes with that, but yep. you've been transitioning yep. uh, and growing and you've yeah. added the research component onto it. And that's where we are now. Is That's what I understood. Is that right? Yeah. It's, you know, Goldwater Nichols shows what a pathway for someone in the military looks like, right? That's that educational mm-hmm. pathway, right? For us in the intelligence community, kind of giving the entire enterprise part of the education and then empowering people with knowledge and confidence to go out and change the enterprise. So our partnerships take many different forms, but they always had the basis of it as driving intellectual capital on our students' experience. Okay. And on the topic of intellectual capital, one of the things that quite interests me, um, this, co- this comes from an old soccer injury. Mm. And my physical therapist said that one of the problems with an Achilles injury is that the blood struggles to get there, to oxygenate it and to bring the nutrients there that are going to uh, help it to heal. So I became very fascinated with that as a metaphor for for intellectual capital or for ideas. I guess the question is, how do you walk that line between, on the one hand, you know, as an intelligence university, you know, you you are bringing in people from the intelligence community or from the military who have got an intelligence uh, angle. So you've got that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, there's, you know, we know that historically institutions think along certain lines and the cultures and subcultures within institutions think along certain lines. I guess my question is, how do you oxygenate something that's TSSCI and that does have that background of people that are coming? And, you know, most people join these institutions when they're quite young and you drink the Kool-Aid and you learn what the incentives are and the best ways to advance and how you're going to get you know, up the hierarchy and so yeah. forth, and which means that certain things are more thinkable than other things. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you want it to be oxygenated yes. like my Achilles. Yeah. You want the nutrients to get there. Yeah. But how do you do that with that almost bracketing off because yeah. of the fact yeah. that it's at TSSEI right. and that it comes along with the baggage of intelligence agencies and uh, the DOD? Baggage. 
Yeah, not <laughs> sorry, not baggage. No, no, I know not baggage. No, no, I, uh, um, no, no, no. That's actually the right word. Furniture, the yeah, intellectual yeah. furniture right. that sure. comes along with sure. uh, being part of those institutions. All right, so there's a lot to unpack. There. Sorry, no, no, that's good. No, I love it. That's a great question. So, first off, uh, let's be clear. Um, kindred spirits here. I destroyed my body playing soccer too. So, uh, and, and actually last year managed to tear, um, all of my hamstrings and had to learn to walk again kind of thing. So I'm with you on the, on the soccer injury thing, uh, and, and the oxygenation of muscles uh, at my age. Uh, so this is a very personal analogy you're bringing in, right? (laughs) As a biologist too, right? So look, it goes back to, it greatly goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the student experience and why this place is so special. It's because I purposely describe that person in their early thirties who knows what the challenge is, knows what they possibly could do about it. And then knowledge empowers them. Right. So when you get into that kind of an environment where there's a very robust intellectual exchange of ideas and debate um, you start to shed all of that pretty quickly. So remember those 10 and 50 meter target days that they're all going through, all of a sudden they walk into a classroom and they're thinking strategically all the time. They're, they're taking in new information all the time. It gets them thinking there is no challenge in getting our students to make those classrooms, uh, you know, a, a hub of activity that way. So I think we keep fresh because there's this constant you know, churn of, of really brilliant people coming in. Uh, same thing in our faculty. We have, you know, we have a core faculty, but we have a lot of people who come in through JDAs and, and other means for temporary assignments. So I think, I think the mix of people and perspectives and the understanding that we are there, we are responsible for rethinking everything. Ask the right question. Then you have to get the right people in the room to, to start answering it. I think that's the perspective. And I know that may not be a satisfying answer, but really that's the secret sauce. That's the magic of why we don't get stale. What happens is people come in with those preconceived notions or they come in with their standing analytic lines, whatever that looks like for them, the furniture, the baggage, right? Whatever mm-hmm. that is, they come in and I think they shed it fairly quickly because all of a sudden there's all of these perspectives around them and they're hearing something and they realize not to overuse the word safe space, but it is the place where they actually are supposed to start saying something that may be heretical. And how do you talk about things that are that different and heretical sounding in a place where you can come up with something better and then actually, wow, there's new knowledge. There's something to shoot for. There is something to do there. The day that we stop doing that is the day I'll come back to you and say, yep, things are getting a little stale or we're, we're overcome by someone's you know, preconceived notions about what our enterprise is. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think is most empowering of it all is you can, you can do a thesis, you can do a capstone project, and unless you're empowered to go out there and evangelize what you're learning and what you're doing, and, and that's the really cool two part as well, is talking to our students. And I, I talked to one in the last graduating class, typing away on a really good thesis one night, and I just said, so, so are you going to brief the leaders in your organization on this? Because this is really kind of a different approach to it. And the first answer was, well, not sure I really want to, I said, please don't say cause trouble, right? They sent you here so that you could come back and tell them what a better way looks like. And seeing students come to that realization, that's their responsibility, right? And, and to, to leave and, and what we are over 10 years now, what we're trying to do a better job is be able to make sure that our stakeholders understand that person needs to be utilized, that that thesis, there is something there for you. So building this, so the new governance structure that we have under ODNI allows us to more, you know, in a more integrated manner, make sure that we can do that. And how does it go for uh, for you, Scott? What's your degree of latitude? Are you like, listen, I'm an academic, I've got experience in the intelligence community, I know what the hell I'm talking about, like, leave me alone. So for example, if you're, you know, the person that does your job at GW or something, sure, you may have a, a Senate or a board that you need to go to, but, you know, you've got a degree of latitude or are you, I'm kind of caricaturing it here, but are you getting the ODNI like phoning you up saying, you know, this is what you need to have in the syllabus or, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And, you know, the Secretary of Defense is like, you know, you need to focus on defense intelligence. That's where it's at. So it's a little bit of a caricature, but help me understand like, you know, we've all, (laughs) we've all got 
areas that we can affect agents in and we've all got structures that we're constrained by in various ways. So in a way that's not going to get anyone in trouble, like help me understand. Yeah, what, like, what, what could what? go wrong with that question? <laughs> no, seriously, it's a great question. And, and it's actually a, a, at the heart of governance. It's the heart of, of who we are. So here's some comparisons. Um, I do. I have a board of visitors. Um, they are the oversight voice for my institution to the DNI. So we actually just met recently uh, with the DNI and the PDNI, and we kind of laid out, you know, here's here's the state of play. So the idea is that our stakeholders provide input so that we can get strategic guidance from the DNI, and then we take that strategic guidance, and then we turn to the higher education side of our mission, which is all of our mission, and we package that in ways. So my accountabilities, all right. So this is what makes it interesting as a federal institution, particularly mine, because. Um, the National Security Act of 1947 now says that the DNI can host a university. <laughs> and, and so kind of looking at Congress who authorizes me to confer degrees, right? So it's the president of the university is authorized to confer degrees. The secretary of education approves our programs. So that's the accountability over there. And then the Middle States Commission on Higher Education, which is the accreditor for most of the schools in town here, then I'm held to a standard of performance academically on seven standards of, you know, including the student experience, governance, all of that, right? So I have those three accountabilities, which are actually the sum total of how the university operates. And those are my accountabilities. And then I'm turning to the DNI and my board is saying they are meeting that, right? So there's a separation, there's a distance there, right? And so that's what our governance calls for. So with academic freedom, I've always joked since I've gotten there, my job is to stand at the, at the gates and, you know, with the sword and the shield and fight the barbarians off, right? And it's not, it, the issue for, for higher education, you know, for an institution like ours, it's not about the people who are going to tell you what not to write on or what not to study, right? Our creditors start at a much more basic level. Are you making decisions in your institution that would lead to something that looks like influence, and it's an important thing. And it's a, it's an, it's an, it's a very, you know, got a many, many years uh, kind of uh, on this. And it's constantly under discussion and challenge in higher education. So for us, we're balancing our ability to remain as a credit institution with those accountabilities to Congress, to the Secretary of Education, and to our creditors, and then turn to the government and say, so by their standards, we're delivering the following things to you. And then take the input from our stakeholders, right, as guidance as to how we can serve them better. And what's the model for your staff, for your faculty? Are they like a, you know, small liberal arts university where they're mainly doing teaching and, you know, in the summers they try to squeeze in a bit of research or is it more like, I don't know, a juke or something where they have like research assistants and they're expected to focus on research and they may teach the occasional class and, you know, as someone that came yeah. from the academy, right, right. there's all different types of people. Right. Do you have the prima donnas that are like, you know, I'm a research superstar. How can you possibly expect me to deign to teach in a classroom? And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being playful. Obviously. No, I was that person. <laughs> <laughs> I was that person back in a major okay. state institution at one point. Okay. <laughs> uh, so tell, yeah. tell us about the, is yeah. there a model or is it, are there different types of? So um, it's, it's, yeah, Thanks. Great question. We're, we're uh, in many ways, we're, you know, similar to many other institutions because the accountabilities I just described, we have to demonstrate that we have a vibrant economy of ideas and that we have an academic culture that drives exactly the kinds of things you're talking about, right? So uh, we are a mix. Um, and, and so we have uh, folks who are very heavily teaching and then a mix of teaching and research and then people who are very focused on research. It's, it's, it's a mix. And over time, we will continue to be as flexible as we need to be to get that balance right. We have people who are full-time uh, and our core faculty, and they have you know, the privilege of working with our students and teaching and doing research in, in a, a unique strategic environment that doesn't really exist anywhere else in the intelligence world, right, and in, in, in this nation. So recognizing that and then understanding that we build on that by bringing people in from the military and thought leaders from other places. So there's this mix of people, whatever vehicle by which we can get someone there for three days, three months, three years or a lifetime, 
uh, we try to remain flexible just to get the intellectual capital in that we need. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I find quite interesting is I'm wondering, like, like say for the 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 capstones or the theses and dissertations and so forth, are they all? So they're all related to the intelligence community, obviously. But are we talking about a? Is there a major preponderance of social sciences type approaches, or like how how broad are we going here? Are we going from biological sciences to hard sciences to uh, social sciences, or are we kind of? It's most of our focus is here, but we do a little bit of this, or you know, give us an understanding of the of the the domains and also maybe some of the major disciplines that, you know, in a more traditional university, is it history, political science? Like what are some of the, the main things going on there? The answer to the question is yes. Um, <laughs> it, it is all of the above. It's actually quite an amazing mix of, you know, some folks come um, maybe with without a clear idea of what they want their thesis or capstone to be. Others come with a problem set that they've thought through that they've been burning to get into. Um, we help to refine that, develop that, provide the people and the infrastructure to make that come alive. It can be regional, it can be functional, it can be very technical, or it can be quite philosophical. And it could be unclassified, but it could be very classified. So it's all of the above. And, and also, you know, encouraging over the past 10 years, building the infrastructure so that our students can publish readily. That will be, you know, over the next five years, you will start to see us. Uh, we have outward-facing publications. We have inward-facing publications. We have some that are both. We'll, you know, morph them between those two worlds because we want to connect back into those other institutions and partners. And so I think that's the thing. People come to us with hard problems. They don't know who to talk to. And, and we connect them to people who will be able to do that. So everything is on the table, plus leadership plus organizational management. How would you restructure? How would you rethink the enterprise? All of those things. Sorry, that's a broad answer. But no, that was a broad question. It's all on the, it's all, it's all on the table. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like for the levels of analysis, I'm assuming it could go from like super specific to very broad, yes. you know, yep. trying to systematize like a whole thing. Or, you know, you mentioned philosophical, like uh, could someone be like, I think that a lot, you know, bear with me for a second yeah. here. I think that uh, along the lines of Martin Heidegger, we need to think about, you know, what exists in the world and, and the ways in which we capture and apprehend it. And, you know, I want to do some more abstract philosophical paper on the nature of knowledge. Um, is that kind of kosher or is that sort of, you're going a bit wackadoodle here, you know, um, you know, bring it, bring it back into yeah. focus or, yeah, help no, us understand. Question. So um, when I say rethinking, reimagining, um, that can start with the right question. So there's different ways that asking the right question comes to us. So we will have IC agencies. We will go out and we will ask. We will recruit for topics. Uh, we will use our Rolodex to go back uh, to certain offices that have kind of an umbrella view of, of the mission and say, like, what's a list of relevant things we could be working on for you? And sometimes students come with those. Sometimes it's a list. And we have thesis fairs and, and opportunities for people to sit in rooms and throw around ideas and see what, see what sticks. And by doing that, we start to, to develop out ideas. Other people hear that and, and riff off of that, right? So there's, there's a process that goes on where we get input, we solicit, and then, like, on the research arm of the institution, they kind of keep uh, a, a very wide range of topics flowing in that sometimes are so far out of the norm of what we would normally talk about one, you know, day to day. So I think there's a, uh, a pretty rich set of ideas, and it is. I mean, you could, you could work on uh, anything from uh, philosophy of machine learning and comparing you know, humans to machine learning and, and, and argue cognitive processes. Uh, you could talk about, you could debate uh, how algorithms should be used, or you could wind up writing an algorithm. I mean, so it's, it works at all those different levels. I want to dig into your story a little bit more, but before we get there, uh, just, a, just a few uh, questions. One of them was that it sounds like what you're doing is, this is mainly for analysts, is that correct? It's not for no. operators or it's for anybody, anybody. in the IC? Anybody. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, no, um, 
if you, depending on how you look at the intelligence enterprise, you know, that circle, that wheel, however you look at it, right? Um, those different roles have to be in the room because if that voice isn't there, then the collector is not going to hear from the analyst. They're not going to hear from the operator. They're not going to hear from the, the customer, policymaker. I mean, whoever's in the room, right? That matters to drive the conversation because, you know, we'll, we'll hear someone say, well, hold it. That hasn't been true for like three years. And then they start talking about why that is. And that's the level of connectivity across the entire enterprise. So when you have these other agencies and departments on the non-Title 50 side, when they come in, people learn more about what they're actually protecting in the nation, right? So we continue to push organizational and mission diversity in the room because unless all those voices are there, we're not actually necessarily learning something new, right? That's how you drive to something different. One of the other things that I thought was quite interesting as well was You've got like quite an interesting alumni network, right? Uh, Paul Nakasone, the NSA yeah. director, um, John Allen, the director of Brookings. Um, I mean, Brookings is like usually tops the the rankings of the world's top think tanks and stuff. So, as the president, or, or I mean, I don't mean them specifically, but help us understand your relationship and the university's relationship with its alumni network. Yeah, it's great. Uh, we have a wonderful alumni network. Um, our, our job is to work with them to tap the resources that they have because you talk about intellectual capital, the people who have gone on for our institution to do amazing things, uh, and not just Paul and John and, and, and the, many of the national security, um, leaders and heroes out there who, who speak of their time. Uh, it's also about people who have been the mainstay. It's like the bedrock of national security that, that tens of thousands of people. It's the fabric. I mean, I know that sounds, you know, but I look upon it as the fabric of national security because if you, like, within DOD, um, I've talked to many DOD leaders who said, well, the reason we send people to NIU is we want our, our those people who are going to pin on that first, second, and third star, we want them to have that very strong understanding of that enterprise so that over time, when they get into those meetings, right, their decision space does not shrink. They're not in a box. They understand what those collection trade-offs are going to be in a crisis. And, and that's what we hear a lot. We hear a lot that that's what elevated their ability, you know, critical thinking and everything else. But it gave them a perspective to be able to assess uh, a lot more comprehensively what was going on. So our relationship to them is great. Um, I talked to Paul Nakasone not that long ago. And every time I talk to Paul, what can I do to help? Um, hi, Paul. Uh, and we appreciate that. Uh, Bob Ashley. Uh, so it was great when we were executive agent was DIA and Bob Ashley was my executive agent as, uh, as a graduate. So tell us how you got uh, mixed up in this crazy enterprise. So from growing up in northwestern New Jersey, um, your grandmother's from Glasgow, which is uh, obviously awesome. I knew I really liked you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Local boy from Glasgow Ex makes good. Exactly. Congratulations, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, you know, and you're involved in plant science. Yeah. And, you know, it's a it's a circuitous story, but sometimes those are the best ones. So tell yeah. us how you ended up in intelligence. You know, for me growing up, uh, kind of in a semi-rural area and, and just having a lot of time outdoors, uh, I, I became fascinated with plants at an early age. Uh, my dad actually planted acres of small tree seedlings. I wound up by the time I was in high school owning a tree nursery, a ball and burlap tree nursery. So wow. I was earning college money by running a business through middle school and high school and delivering on a tractor. So, and, you know, I, I did a lot of outdoor work uh, that was related to plants through high school. I mean, my high school yearbook says, um, says working in plant science uh, and botany. Uh, and people ask me, wow, you were very focused. I'm like, well, either that or I never rethought what I was doing. But no, truly, um, my, uh, actually, I had two boyhood idols. One was uh, Johnny Unitas, quarterback of the Baltimore Colts. Uh, and the other was George Washington Carver, who, um, the son of slaves who, uh, it's just a tr yeah, horrible story. This, this young man arose to be one of the greatest scientists of his generation. And it was because he wanted to figure out how plants worked. He wanted to just tear them apart. But his view of science, which is my view of science, is like, I love the theoretical stuff. But I'm asking myself every day, how does that actually benefit somebody? And so I want to work on both ends. I want to do basic research and I want to do applied research. And he laid out a model for how to do that. And so by the time I got through grad school, I wound up, you know, with a, a, a career in uh, 
doing the tenure track thing uh, in a, in a land grant university as a plant scientist, uh, feeding the third world physiological genetics, just part of the genetic engineering conversation all the way out to conserving uh, wild plant relatives around the world and trying to figure out how we we're going to do that uh, and feed everybody uh, in the future. And so I wound up uh, coming to town in 2000 as part of USDA's team that kind of looked at the global research and on hard problems, $1.2 billion worth of you know, research around the world, building teams. To, it was a dream job, but I got to work in the building named after George Washington Carver, the Carver Center. This is the Department of Agriculture? Yeah, Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service. So that was a great, great period for me because my, my kind of global perspective on science, I had spent time collecting endangered plants in other countries, being chased by guys with guns falling off cliffs. There's a lot of great stories here. So I had a lot of exp international experience that way. Came back in, um, uh, I was in DC and uh, I was sitting there watching my son play high school soccer uh, one evening. And over a period of weeks, uh, the dad next to me was asking me a lot of science questions. And we got several weeks into it and, and he asked me like another question. And I'm like, okay, so I'll answer your question, but like when we're done, with this answer, you need to tell me where you're from and what job you're trying to talk me into. And, and uh, he was surprised. I was surprised he was surprised. But uh, it was a great conversation. And it happened to be um, about bananas, actually. Uh, I was asked about bananas. And I went on this worldwide tour about, you know, what bananas had done to the economies of many countries, biologically what they are, how they ripen. I mean, it's just a worldwide thing. But I said, but that's probably not why you're asking me the question. And And I said, you're probably asking me about bananas because probably somewhere in the last few weeks, a nuclear alarm went off in a port somewhere and it was a boatload of bananas. And he just looked at me and said, do you want a job? And it was like, you know, okay, so potassium, high potassium concentrations, right? So think back in that period and, and we're talking post not right after 9-11, right? So there's a lot of questions about how science was going to be reoriented for national security, so basically, a couple of directives came out of the White House at the time. It said the intelligence community needs a broader, more diverse set of scientists with global experience. And, and so that was, that was the attraction, right? So um, I wound up, you know, kind of building a partnership. I had to do a sabbatical. I wound up uh, in that agency working for a chief scientist and, and kind of bringing what I knew to bear on a, on a problem set. And, and just kind of took to it and wound up moving over to the National Counterterrorism Center. Wow, that's fascinating. So your appointment as president of the NIU, you're, it's, a, it's a very interesting skill set that you bring to the job um, from the other ones that I've seen. And maybe this is, this is probably partly because it used to be under the defense umbrella much more closely, but it was, you know, admirals and generals and it was people that had spent, you know, that had considerable time in a certain institution and had climbed the ladder. But you've... You've had lots of lateral moves and different types of things. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that and what you think that someone that's made the lateral moves that you have brings to the position. I mean, someone that has has saw uh, a broad range of, of knowledges and a broad range of how knowledge can be used and operationalized, whether it be in the academy and uh, WMD and NCTC, now in the NIU, but uh, give me your take on it. Yeah, so it's interesting. That's a great question. Um, because actually during the interview, uh, that was actually a question that was posed to me. It's like, I'm looking at your pathway and it's kind of like, the next logical move was X and you seem to jump two hops over here to Y. And they want to know what the influences were that, that, that drove me to make decisions. And, you know, you'd like to think that there was a, a plan all the time. But, you know, um, that model of science that I described before, I kept asking myself, you know, so there's, there's theoretical science and I want to learn new stuff. I want to rip chlorophyll apart and figure out how it works. At the same time, I want to know how a farmer in Africa at the same time is going to actually wind up like surviving and feeding his family, right? So there's this grand scale of connectivity, always keeping that big picture in place. So I think it's a juggling thing, right? You can be the jack of all trades and master of none. You could be Cliffy from Cheers, right? And, and, and be on, you know, having that, that useless factoid, right? But if you're grounding for me, grounding the disciplines of intelligence in science that's both theoretical and applied, for me, that framework works really well. 
So for me, intelligence analysis, stepping into it and leading it was like, wow, this makes sense based on everything I've ever done before. But now in a single page, you're about to communicate something incredibly important, something very sobering. So how do you do that? Because words matter. So the question you would ask yourself is, if I use that technical word, what does that mean to somebody? If someone overseas said that word and we're now translating that word, now we're passing that word on, like, what does that actually mean? So contextualizing what we get through the intelligence process, through like not just intelligence analysis, but through science, tech, contextualizing languages, all of that appeals to me because you want to exhaust those avenues and make sure that you have done that job. Wow. And just a, a couple of final questions. Uh, one of them is, you know, with just listening to you talk there, it made me think about the the structure of most uh, governments, most states. It's been informed by the industrial age. You know, if we just think about, say, you know, the National Security Act, 1947, various uh, institutional adaptations to technology and historical change and so forth. So I guess the question is, how do you balance that where you have these institutions that were designed and evolved during the industrial age um, and there are certain legacy systems that come with that and then you have the the flatter, you know, more uh, adroit and agile and less hierarchical you know, Silicon Valley kind of approach, mm-hmm. you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the, the IC, you know, can't just have everybody sitting around on beanbags, you know, um, um, riding around scooters and stuff. I'm being playful, obviously, no, I, but, but how, how do you balance that with the expectations of the current generation that, that may work? And if they're not just spending their whole career on IC, they may work in these flatter structures or uh, places where the person that has the right answer might not just be the person furthest up the hierarchy. And then they move over to, you know, work for these and, you know, uh, work for government that is slightly different. And the historian in me just finds this really interesting because the institutions that we have, they've, you know, they've kind of adapted, but the pace of change compared to technological change yes. and historical change, there's not always a, a direct keeping up with what's yes. going on. So other than bringing in these people, these bright people and oxygenating them with ideas from across the community and sending them back out to evangelize. And I mean, that's, to me anyway, that's a very important thing that you're doing. But I guess I just wondered that as the president of NIU, is that something that you think about, like the the modernity, but industrial age institutions, super small question. No, it's, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's it's a great question. So, so for me, like in counterterrorism, right? When you look at kind of legacy WMD issues from the Cold War, and and you're looking at that, even as now you're talking about people outside those fence lines, right? And and trying to find ways to look for needles in haystacks when you have a static thing over here, right? A standing thing here, and a very fluid thing on the other side of the fence. So that's what we got good at. We got good at being able to reconcile kind of those two worlds. As we did that, we've been talking, and I'm just an, uh, another person, another baby boomer talking about how we need to harness generational differences to, you know, but it, it, it is meaningful because it's not just about, you see the agencies now kind of talking about how to recruit, how to, how to, how to break that through. The digital tether, you know, the, the things that, that we need to help our workforce get through to continue to compete and recruit for those folks. So they will go to the private sector, if, if, but at the same time, there's, there is still that group of people who step forward and they want to work for the, they want to work for the government. They want to do this. This is their, this is their calling and vocation. Um, our tagline uh, from, I guess we're using it from graduation a few years ago is, you know, your time, your calling, your university. And, and that speaks to the heart of like the people who come to NIU is they believe that about themselves. But I think you're right in, in terms of adapting technology, if we're not adapting to the things that they believe, if they know what they want to do, if they know what they, how they want to change the enterprise, if they can't do it with us, they will do it. And that's great. Innovation is going to happen. But the question is, how do you reconcile 
those two pools of intellectual capital so that we have a mission that's working seamlessly. Uh, I'm all for innovation, but I'm also for retaining a cutting-edge workforce and making sure that we're meeting their needs. For us at NIU, and you see some really wonderful things that different agencies are doing to recruit, and they're looking broader, they're looking in different places, and they're using different approaches, and that's what we have to do. And and they're doing it on social media, and and it's great. Um, for us, uh, we're getting those students in, we're using... Uh, we're going to be opening up a, everyone's opening up a collaboration laboratory and, and we're doing so as well. Uh, we'll have unclassified and, and classified collaboration laboratories. So in, in certain respects, they'll be able to use technology and do things they may not be able to use every day in the workplace to kind of communicate, work together and build kind of an intellectual profile with other people in a different setting mm-hmm. and then figure out how to bring that into the, the institution. So we're giving, we're, we're starting to try and give them that opportunity. My, my take on that is if we allow them to collaborate the way they want to and the way we think they should be with technology, they're going to help step forward, help make those decisions with us on how we adopt in the workplace. They've got to be part of the, have that ownership of the solution and the problem set with us. So mm-hmm. um, that's kind of what we're hoping, uh, but not making them, you know, through education, Anyone who thinks that something's off the table, you asked about big existential questions before, and those need to be on the table. And we, we need to walk, work through them, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we need to have people understand that, look, we'll find a way to help you do that. We'll find a way for you to explore that. Because if, if we don't, we're also going to do that maybe in a classified environment to come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to say that one way of doing things is better than the other. I wasn't, you know, just ragging on. <laughs> it was more just, I think that previously there was a closer fit between say the structure of corporations and the structure of government you know hierarchies yeah. and knowledge right. was in certain places right. but now it's more and more yeah it's disaggregated um, to me and a great to a greater extent so that's where the question came from well, we're and, working we're also working at the speed of venture capital too right so you have venture capital out there you have major corporations out there and and so just kind of figuring out what the battle rhythm is by which we tap into change. And there are a lot of wonderful people out there who are making those connections back into government, both for purposes of, of, of you know, the industrial base, as you, t- as you say, but also because they believe government should be functioning with those technologies and other ideas. And it's, it's a great convert. It's, it's a good place to have those conversations. We hope to be the institution that drives why we would do X over Y. Mm-hmm. Well, Thanks so much for your time. This has been a really fun conversation. So thanks so much for sharing your insight and your expertise. I really appreciate it, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTL SpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.